Welcome to the latest By The Minute Aberdeen podcast. Unlike last time out, we've got a couple of wins to look back on, which always makes for us like the more pleasant experience. Joining me tonight to do that, we're joined by show regular uh, Martin Clunas. Martin, how are you? We're doing wonderful, Richard. Wonderful at all, all the time. And we're joined by show semi-regular. It's uh, former STV sport guru and uh, big fan of uh, football stats. It's Tom Watts. Tom, how are you? Very good, thank you very much. And we're delighted to have with us tonight uh, a man whose journalism career uh, took him from the Langstrat to Fleet Street, except the journals probably were still on Broad Street at that point, and Fleet Street was but a figment of his imagination when he went to London. But anyway, it's a man with a new book about the Dons and about his career in journalism out called Stand By Your Reds. It's Brian Cooney. Brian, delighted to have you with us. Good evening, Richard, and uh, thank you for that very auspicious uh, lead-up. Um, it was Broad Street, not Langstrom. <laughs> I didn't get up there. <laughs> well, I think from an aesthetic point of view, that's probably a very good thing. You know, they're coming back to Broad Street. They are, they are. Although, you know, they're printed in Dundee now, of course. So. That's right. The Dundonian editor. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll obviously undoubtedly talk about... Uh, your time, not just with the journals, but with many different uh, publications. And indeed, your time in the stands at Petaudry later on in the show. But first to the game on Saturday against St Johnston, which uh, no one expected to be quite as straightforward as it was. A resounding and very comfortable 3-0 victory. Uh, now, Tom, if we can go firstly to you, it was a similar formation to what we deployed against Motherwell the week before, but a subtle shift, really, in what Derek McInnes uses as a standard formation. Typically, you'd expect it to be a 4-2-3-1. Very clearly, though, it was a 4-3-2-1, or a 4-1-2-2-1, if you will, uh, with Anthony O'Connor uh, shielding in front of the back two. Uh, and that's obviously a direct response to what happened in the League Cup game at Motherwell, but it seems to have, um, he seems to have stumbled across something. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, the, the midfield and, and obviously the central defence looks an awful lot more solid. It, it's still a bit of guesswork every time the you know, 11 players are named as to who's playing where. Uh, but, you know, in the last couple of matches, that's that's been a, a, a positive rather than a negative. And it looked like we really tried to exert control on the midfield, which is something that St Johnston typically do do quite well. They've got a lot of ball, good ball-playing um, midfield players. And, uh, you know, if, if they can get, get a hold on a game, they can really choke teams. So it did look like we, we kind of tried to compensate, uh, um, early on and, and stamp our authority on that. We looked a lot more solid in, uh, in the centre of the park. Um, we got forward an awful lot more quickly and obviously with playing two, I'm not sure we can say that Andrew Constance is not a natural left back anymore, but playing the two, two of the best fullbacks in the league in their natural positions, that also seemed to give us width and attacking impetus that we ha- haven't always had uh, otherwise. Brian, uh, obviously it was Graham Shinney back to left back to cover for the injured Andy Considine. I wonder if that was maybe a bit of a blessing in disguise due to the slightly more cautious setup. Now, Andrew's in the top 10 all time appearances for the Dons and um, certainly has more than proved his worth at left back, but it's certainly a different outlook to the side when he plays there instead of Graham Shinney. I think Graham Shinney looked uh, rejuvenated on Saturday. 
from what I saw on the television, um, because I, I, I saw him down at Hearts uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it wasn't really happening for him in midfield, with a lot of misplaced passing and whatever. But on Saturday, he, he looked, he was up, up and down the, the left flank, uh, he was making space for himself, his crossing looked better, um, and it just leads me to wonder uh, about Andy Considine, whom I'm of the greatest regard for. He's been a wonderful servant to the club and, and a much underrated player. But however, uh, I don't know if he's all that suited to the left-back position, albeit the fact he's in, improved greatly at it. So I just wonder if this maybe is a sign of the future that Chinny will be restored to his proper position. That's a really fair point. That, that um, he, he certainly looked... He, he really looked like he enjoyed the game, and I think in, in previous games when he's been put, uh, when he's been in, 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 in the centre of the park, he does a job. He does a really efficient job. He moves the ball around, uh, he closes things down, and he gets back and forward well. But you know, he got, he, he did look like he really seemed to enjoy that game uh, at the weekend, and you know, was attacking at every opportunity. I think the interesting thing for me, Tom, about that was um, we, we might often accuse Andy when he plays there of, uh, of naturally moving across to cover a centre-back role, which you would expect from an actual centre-back. Uh, Graham, it seemed on times, would naturally move forward into the centre midfield and <laughs> because he's been playing there for the best part of a year. So I, I just kind of worry that if he is going to go back there, there could be the opportunity for that to be exploited. I mean, I, I think there's still going to be a, a, a role for Andrew Constantine, particularly in games when we might, you know, I mean, it was a good game for, for Graham Shinney to find his kind of attacking impetus because, you know, one thing we haven't really said is that St. Johnson were pretty awful and that's that's a surprise because they've been very good over the last couple of years, especially against us and even further at Tawdry, uh, but they weren't very good um, and Shinney really tormented them. In games where we might need to be a little more compact, I don't think it's, you know, I, I think the fact that we, we've got a, a left back, or certainly a, a player who's played at left back for the last five or six years, who can tuck in and is a little bit more naturally conservative, um, there, there's a real role for them there. I think the problem perhaps Constantine has had this season is he hasn't had anyone in front of him that protects him in the way that, that Johnny Hayes yeah. used to uh, and gets back and forward. Of course, yeah, that's something we, we've touched upon quite a few times from the very first couple of games this season. And um, as hard as it might be to believe, we're already into the fourth month of this season. And finally, it seems that we've uh, decided, determined upon a centre-half pairing which uh, he may well stick with, Martin. Uh, Scott McKenna, over the last two weeks, has done very, very well alongside Kai Arneson. What do you reckon? They didn't have very much to do on Saturday, to be totally fair to them. But um, McKenna, you know, he sort of he, early in the game, he won over the crowd. He made a couple of strong challenges, came up for a couple of headers, and kind of that's the kind of thing you want a young player. I mean, he's only twenty, you know. So the, you know, you, the last thing he needs is the crowd maybe getting on his back with a mistake. But he won the crowd over, and you can see that you know he's you know he's not he's not exactly slight as well. You know, he looks like he can hunt, take care of himself, um, and he. And he looked completely unfazed on Saturday. Um, Kari Arneson as well. I mean, that's two games we've seen Arneson, where we've, we've mentioned here that, and much like against Kilmarnock, he had very little to do. Um, and on Saturday, again, there was there was nothing really that came from St Johnston, but that's not you know, that's not the defence's problem. No, anything that they were called upon doing, which was mainly in terms of sort of sweeping up and kind of getting the ball to the midfield, they did, and they did it quite easily. But McKenna certainly. Um, which is it's still very early in his Aberdeen career, obviously, um, but he certainly looks to be um, a very, very good, good prospect and some someone that um, we're going to be very positive about, hopefully, over the next months and years to come. I think um, McKenna came of age um, in only his third game, I think it was, uh, when he was brought in against Motherwell last week in the league, and uh, he played very well, very, very uh, astute. Heading ability is good, positive. Um, but he had a skirmish uh, with Louis Moult over the touchline. Uh, and watching that closely, he stood up for himself so well that, that Moult looked a little bit depleted after that. I think they've got a young star. I, I, 
I've got to admit, I was um, a bit flummoxed when he was sent out on loan to Ayr, but that might that might have been the making of him. I remember he was, wasn't he uh, substituted one match a couple of years ago at half-time? Or am I, am I wrong in that? I think it was Michael Rose, who was another one of the young centre-backs at the time, that played away from home at St Johnston and, and got pulled right. off at half-time, I right. think. I thought McKenna had been subbed. Uh, at one point. Anyway, however, he's a good player. And thank goodness we need a good player in that position. Yeah, as much as anything, I think it's it's a really likeable defensive pairing. You know, that from whatever that counts for. You know, you've got a, a, a fan favourite who's come back and, and everyone really wants Arneson to, to, to use his experience over the last few years to help the team kick on. And, you know, if in doing so he can also help bring on, uh, bring on McKenna, who you know, I think people like you, like you say, were kind of a little worried about the direction that he was travelling in, and it almost looked like other players had had come in ahead of him in, in the defence. It, it's a, it would be really nice to see them, not least because they seem to work well together, but just because it's a really popular couple kind of pairing. Yeah, I think the Arneson inclusion is uh, fascinating as well because because he had that one bad game and he would. He was dropped, and then he seemed to. I, I seem to remember when it, when I went to uh, Murrayfield, he seemed to have a bit of an altercation with one of the Aberdeen backroom staff at half time, and he, he didn't seem to have settled in until then, till he was brought back. He seems to have settled down. He can be a, an awkward uh, customer, Arneson. He, he's uh, he's got his own mind. He speaks his own mind. His training, perhaps was never that great, even when he was under the, the axis of Brown and, and, and Knox. And Knox used to tell him to get the lead out of his arse, <laughs> uh, which uh, probably didn't go down too well with Arneson. But he's a very good player, and, and he should be able to point McKenna in the, the correct direction. Well, I was actually going to raise a, a fairly similar point to um, Tom there, in that Scott McKenna, it's, he's a young youth player coming through, and it is something we do like to see at Pataudry. However, and Brian, you do actually touch upon this at points in your book, um, homegrown players can sometimes be the one who, uh, after their initial grace period, get a lot of the stick, don't they? Yeah, well, it's um, it's endemic and cherishing, you know, you... you, you... You search out the, the hometown boy, he comes on, there's a lot of effervescence because he comes from the same area, but by equal, equally, when something goes wrong with it all, the, the, um, the onus then comes on the terracing and, and it can be fairly uh, shattering for, for whoever's on it. I mean, I remember the, way back when I was a kid, they had a, a player called Harry Yorston, mm-hmm. who was a golden boy. Uh, blonde, good-looking, uh, uh, scored score a lot of goals, whatever, bit of a ladies' man, liked dancing, whatever. But, and, and Harry could, could be terrific, and yet at other times he wasn't so good. And when he wasn't so good, the crowd let, really let him know it. And it was a, fr- a shame he gave up football at 28 years of age. And a couple of years later, mind, he won the pool, so <laughs> maybe, the, maybe there's a lesson there for for people. Yes, Harry famously walked away to become a fish porter, as I remember. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a guy who's in the top 10 all time goal scorers for Aberdeen, and even he was obviously getting in the neck back in the day. Um, but I think that centre half pairing has again been helped these last few weeks, Martin. You've had Anthony O'Connor not just in front of them, as for example Ryan Jack would have been in front of them last season. It's clear that he's had a specific man-marking job in the last couple of games. He he did a job on Louis Moult. He was asked to do a similar job. He was never far away from Stephen McLean whilst he was on the pitch on Saturday as well. I have considerable reservations about O'Connor, both as a centre-half and a centre-midfielder, but in that destructive man-marking role, it seems again we might have found a home for him. Absolutely. I mean, I, I completely share your worries about him as well. And um, we've seen it though, in, the, in all the time we've been doing this podcast. Um, the feedback that you get or the kind of the chat that we get on the social media pages is that Aberdeen needs some sort of nasty bastard in midfield or one of these guys who can do the dirty work and kick people. People didn't. A lot of people didn't want Ryan Jack doing that sort of thing. You know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. I've no quarrel with that. Uh, O'Connor might just be that guy. 
um, who isn't going to do anything flashy, mainly because he isn't that type of player. Um, you know, win the ball, cause a nuisance, stop the talented players, and whatever you think of Stephen McLean, he is quite, he is talented. He's know he's got ability there. Um, you know, stop them from playing and give the ball to the, your creative players. And he did that. He's done that twice in a row now um, with you know with great success. So um, if he can, if he can keep that up, then there is a role for him um, definitely in the Aberdeen team. Up at the other end of the park, um, it's clear that uh, Adam Mooney is just not going to go away, is he? Uh, however, often new candidates might come in to uh, replace him as the key striker for Aberdeen. And however often that people again on social media might decry him and say that, oh, all he does is score goals. Well, what a talent to have. Another hat trick for Adam on Saturday. And now 81 goals for the Dons, moving ahead of Duncan Shearer into the top 20 all-time list. Clearly, Tom, he has his limitations, and Derek McInnes post-match spoke about the discussions he'd been having with him during the week about what more he can add to his game outside that box. But when you get the ball in the penalty box, it's few better. Yeah, I mean, Derek McInnes said he wanted him to become more of a nuisance. And, I mean, you can see it's almost like a, an annual thing. Or it tends to be a little bit earlier in the season that we see an example of why Adam Rooney's the, the main man. But over the last couple of years, there's been someone who's come in and maybe started the season uh, as the main striker. And then it's quite obvious um, after, uh, you know, after a couple of fine performances that he should really be, be starting. Um, his record speaks for itself. I mean, the, the company he's in now, um, in the, the top goal scorers of all time, you know, if at any point in the last 10, 15 years you'd have said we were going to have a striker that was going to get that kind of level of, of, of goals in, in you know, a relatively short period of time, we would have absolutely bitten your hand off for it. I think he's averaging a, in the league alone a goal every 150 minutes, which is, you know, rather spectacular. Uh, and, you know, there, there have been times this season, yes, he has limitations, but there's been times when, I think if, if he'd started the Kilmarnock game, we'd have killed that game before they had the chance to get back into it. Um, in games that we're dominant, in games that we don't have to, you know, that, that maybe there's much more movement and we're going to force the game a little bit more, then there's no... You know, there's no reason not to start him. Having said that, he's got a pretty good record uh, against absolutely everyone he's played. So I think there is, you know, it's long been said that he doesn't do an awful lot but score goals. He showed that he can be a real nuisance, but he showed that he's a, you know, he's a perfect six-yard box striker if you're going to create the chances for him. Now, it's a bit like what we were saying with with the defence earlier on. The defence looked comfortable in the last couple of games, but they weren't challenged with an awful lot. At the other end of the pitch, if we're going to create chances for a number nine, then he's going to score them. If we're not going to create chances for a number nine, and we're going to have to rely on working harder to get the ball in and around the box and take half chances, then the entire game is going to be an awful lot more difficult. So I think when we can get Rooney and May on the pitch together, then, you know, all, all power to it. They, you know, they're two of the best forwards in the, in the league. I mean, Brian, he's, he's not graceful, he's not that quick, he seems really a bit of a throwback in a lot of regards. And however much you want to criticise the St Johnson defence for being very, very lethargic for those first two goals, both from set pieces, Rooney's movement for that first goal is really what makes it, isn't it? Yeah, it was. <clears throat> the way he came to that near post with, with, with the May chip. Um, and May again, the second goal, <clears throat> with the help of a corner. But the, the great thing about that is Rooney comes alive when he's getting the cross balls, the quality balls, into that six-yard box. And too often, this season, sometimes last season, even with, with Hayes and, and uh, McGinn, the crosses weren't good enough. Um, but you put the crosses in, quality balls, and uh, you've got the word there, irrepressible. Um, my, my, my one... Uh, thing about Rooney is is his pace uh, has and he never did have much, but it it has, seems to have gone in the last year or so. Uh, but uh, if you, if you're able to uh, move like you did on Saturday, then I have no qualms. I mean, obviously, to shoehorn into the team alongside May in the formation that we played, he did start out wide left, Martin, uh, but ultimately. 
if he can contribute, if he can score goals. And he did do some good work outside the six-yard box on Saturday. There was one header in the second half, which he flicked on expertly to Stevie May. So he's not pointless outside the box, but there has to be a bit of gerrymandering to get both him and Stevie May and the team together, doesn't there? Well, there will be, yeah. I mean, you're going to have you're going to have one of the, one of those two playing up front, and one of them is going to be sort of out wide. Um, no, absolutely no issue with whichever one that is, because Rooney can cause Rooney does cause problems. Like he, he really, you know, he isn't quick, and that's one thing that we we can say. But well, for for all the kind of the lack of pace he has, he seems to be able to make a mug of centre halves by just finding that little bit of a yard, which which I think can mask the fact that his pace is, isn't really there. But um, it's going to be it'll be it'll be different, I suppose, when we come up against teams that are maybe can offer a little bit more of an attacking threat. Um, then we might have to think about you know maybe just having the one of them up front. But um, the the ability that those two have, um, we can get at teams. And uh, there's 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 goals in the Aberdeen team. You can see that three goals for Adam Rooney on Saturday. You no, know, um, Stevie May would have been disappointed not to get a goal against his old team as well. But you know the setup for that that cross ball and for that first one was just brilliant. Yeah, I was obviously hoping Stevie May would score on Saturday, not just because yeah. we want to score and win, but I, I would have been intrigued to see whether he did the dreadful modern football thing of not celebrating against your former team. I, I can't stand that. It really, really, really turns me off when players do that. Um, I mean, Hib Celtic on, on Saturday was going to be a, a near orgy of players not bothering to celebrate against their <laughs> former team. So, uh, anyway, that felt on Saturday like the first game this season, Tom, where we've actually been... In control. And obviously, we were 2-0 up early on. That helps, of course it helps. But, you know, we've got early leads against Dundee and Kilmarnock. And you'd expect us to push on and, and be comfortable at that point. But we really weren't. Whereas, Saturday, it felt more like us. Yeah, I think um, we we took our chances early on. Which, obviously, as you say, that makes a big difference. But it did look like there was a sort of calmness. Uh, and I'm... I'm it was a lot more measured right throughout. It didn't look like we were trying too hard to force anything. Um, you know, in previous games, even when we'd scored early on, um, we still looked like we were either chasing. We weren't sure whether we were looking to, to kill things off or, or chase the game or, or, um, or you know, shut up shop or whatever. And it just looked like, you know, Derek, is, Derek McInnes has, has talked throughout his time about game management and that's what he's, he's always gone back to game management and we seem to do that better um, on Saturday than, than we have this season at any point I think the fact that we had uh, a stranglehold in midfield really helped I think the fact that we had a, a number of outballs and we had um, Shinny marauding forward that you know could carry the ball into their half and, and Arguably the best game Shea Logan's had this season as well. That all helped. But overall, there just seemed to be a, a shift in the mindset and a, a confidence that as, as well as we played attacking-wise in the, in, the in the opening few games of the season, that we had a sort of resoluteness about us now that we could, we could rely on and we weren't in any fear of, of conceding a stupid goal, which seems to have been the, the case in the, the few games previous. I also say that um, St. Johnson I found thoroughly disappointing. Um, I thought they were fairly anemic. Um, an absence of malice, you might even say. The teams don't like each other, has been proven over the last few years. And it's probably emanating more from Perth than it is from Aberdeen. But there seems to be a a kind of fierce resentment um, in St. Johnson ranks about Aberdeen, and uh, maybe because it, you know it's a Celtic Aberdeen syndrome. You know they've got more money than we have. They can they can buy. Let's show them. I don't know, but uh, I I thought that was a major factor as well on Saturday. I don't I don't think they turned up, but however we did, and that was the main thing. No, it was uh, it was unusual for a Saints team to be that uh, anemic. Is a, is an excellent word, um, Brian. Uh, insipid is uh, another one you I might want to throw into the ring. It's it was just such an untommy right like team um, on Saturday, and uh, fine, we'll take it. We'll take that and move on, and uh, we'll move on to the international break. And after that, Hibs away, which we'll come to in a few minutes' time. 
But firstly, to our guest this week, Brian Cooney. Long and varied career in journalism. Went from racing tipster, I think it was, at the uh, Press and Journal. Yeah, the Colonel. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and moved on to become sports editor at the Daily Mail down in London. And um, I think most pertinently for this podcast, has been a Dons fan since 1949 when he was first taken to Pataudry by his father. Uh, Brian, thank you very much for joining us tonight. The new thank book, it's, uh, it's one part semi-autobiographical, I think, entwining your life with that Pataudry, and one part the... Um, just the teasing out of a kind of old school journalism approach to having contacts within the game and, and, and being able to really get under the skin of some footballers. Well, I hope so. Um, I've always believed in a, in a forensic type interview, um, whether it was in the Daily Mail or, or the Daily Star, which it was before the Mail, uh, and, and then latterly the Sunday Herald. And <clears throat> I think too many... Too many uh, of, of my uh, journalistic brethren, uh, when they approach an interview, they, they uh, some, sometimes miss a lot of the points. They don't pick up on points, and that's one thing for a young journalist. You, you've got you've got to listen, listen closely, pick up what they're saying, and forget your agenda if necessary. You know to get into them. Now, it, it was a pleasure for me. Um, as you said, I, I attended my first match in 1949. I wasn't interested at all. My father uh, was was rather angry with me because I couldn't I couldn't sit still. I was looking for all the fiddlers he was talking about. I was looking for string quartets in the main stand. So he left in Tordy 1949. He never went back. But about three four years later, I I started going, and I went every week. Attended reserve matches and, and stood down at the, the dike, the, the uh, down the south stand, <coughs> and it was a terracing then. I mean, I, I was so lucky because almost the first team I, I saw in Ernest was a championship winning team, 54 55. Yes. Great players. I mentioned one earlier, Harry Austin, but there are even better ones, Graham Leggett. Graham Leggett, marvellous. Uh, marauding right winger who'd come in and score many of his goals at the near post. Jackie Harder, one kidney. Uh, they called him the hare, the fastest man, Petodri. <coughs> Paddy Buckley, <coughs> Paddy Buckley, five foot seven, uh, scored a goal every two games. And he did it, St. Johnson did it, Aberdeen. So, anyway, uh, and that kind of bedrock I went on. Um, I supported the team, began to write about them. In occasions, uh, in other occasions, I, I partied with them when I knew them better. Um, so it, it's been a very close association. Yes, sorry, uh, Brian. Go on. Association for the years, and it culminated in this book, where I thought I would write it uh, from a fan, a writer, uh, and and uh, a critic. I think all, all those sides definitely come through. And the book is, uh, it, it deals with things, in a, it, generally speaking, in a chronological fashion. And in fact, the first interview that's featured in the book is with Bob Wishart, who made his debut in 1953, around the same time you caught your Pataudry bug. Now, obviously, you've interviewed hundreds of exceptionally famous names in your career. Was it any different speaking to one of the icons of your childhood? You know, you know when I w- went to meet Bobby Wishart, I'd seen him play this, this very cultured uh, man at the, the left-hand side of the W, you know, the five forwards, but three up, the two behind, the two inside forwards. <clears throat> and Bobby Wishart was small, uh, a small back lift and a vicious shot, uh, and he used to feed Jackie Harder or whatever. Uh, but when I went to meet him, um, I, would have, I was probably more nervous meeting him than... I'd been in Diego Maradona, Johan Cruyff, uh, Alf Ramsey, uh, Alec Ferguson. It's funny, strange, because he was a hero of mine. And when you're interviewing a hero, you've got to be very careful. <laughs> and I hope I was. And then there's, um, there's, there's some men who you've come across in your career who would have obviously been more receptive to, to you whilst you were doing your job. 
And then maybe you might have met them when they weren't in the football game and it was a different story. And I think Eddie Turnbull is, is maybe one of those men who, whilst he was at the Dons, obviously he, he was the man who kind of resurrected the team from the Nadir in the mid-60s, but he, yeah. he maybe wasn't quite as open to the press as uh, some of his uh, successors. Eddie, Ed, Eddie uh, Turnbull was the uh, essence of a nightmare. <laughs> um, the, I first met him in his office after he left Aberdeen, and it was 1974, and he just signed Joe Harper from Everton. Uh, and I counted up the number of strikers they had, and it tallied five. So um, when we're sitting in this very dark office, there's a little window at the top, I said to him, uh, Eddie, how, how do you square it with five strikers? How does two into five go? Um, how do you keep them all happy? And Eddie considered, looked at his shoes for about a couple of seconds and then said, listen, son, if you want to ask any more questions like that, you can leave two ways, either by the door or the window. And that was it. That was my first meeting with Eddie Turnbull. <laughs> now, my second meeting was up at Petaudry, funnily enough, and he took Hibs up there. And two weeks prior to this, I had interviewed Alan Gordon, who was one of the said strikers. And Alan Gordon had, been, had uh, asked to go on the transfer list. And Eddie Turnbull placed, I think it was 100,000 or something, on his head. And uh, I had phoned Alan Gordon and he said it was a ridiculous sum. And the Hibs were holding him to ransom. So the story of Julie went in. I, Julie, went up to Petaudry and I'm standing in the foyer the outside foyer, and Eddie Turnbull came in. I was being <clears throat> uh, talking to one of the Edinburgh journalists, and he kept looking over at me. And uh, finally, he uh, he said, "Excuse me, John M. Cooney." I said, "Yeah." Brian Cooney. I said, "Yeah." He said Brian Cooney of the Sun. I said, "Another answer like that, you get win a lollipop." <laughs> and well, he went absolutely potty, and rightfully so. I'd had a few drinks. Uh, I was uh, just a little bit careless with my tongue. Anyway, uh, it all went off. Uh, <clears throat> no fisticuffs, but a lot of swearing, shouting, whatever. And all those years later, when I met him for BBC, I was doing a BBC Scotland interview yes, called yeah. Stuff of Legends. And I came to his place, and there was Eddie guiding me into a parking space, putting his hand around my shoulder, taking me into his house, sit me down, get me a cup, cup of tea. And I said to him, do you know who I am? And he said, yes. And fine. At the end of the interview, and it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant interview, he said, it's worth your com time coming, son, wasn't it? And he was just a totally different character, away from football, and being able to look back at, at the triumphs and, and the tears and whatever. And it was a wonderful interview. Do you think that was just the, the stress of the situation, the stress of the game that, that made him like that? Or was it just that he no, decided I, 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 that his approach was to put the shutters up to the press? I, I don't think Eddie got too stressed about things. Eddie was... was uh, you need to be ruthless. Well, Eddie was super ruthless. Mm -hmm. There's a story in the book about, about him, uh, Bobby Hume, who'd come from Rangers, played for Aberdeen, <coughs> Turnbull in a practice session asked him to cross the ball run and cross and and uh, Hume put the ball over the goal first time so Eddie said that, right try it again son did the same thing again and he said a third time son he did it again put the uh, ball behind the goal he says right just get back up the park get yourself dressed and three three young lads were sitting outside the office and they saw Hume go in and come out holding his B-45. And Eddie followed him and he said, see that? That's how you cut out cancer from football boys. So that was Eddie Turnbull. Uh, wonderful manager, Martin, part-time Martin, Martinet. Or maybe it was full-time Martinet. <laughs> but what a character. And certainly it was an extensive surgery he carried out on that dawn side when he when oh. he arrived in the in the late uh, sort of mid to late sixties. I think he put out seventeen. 
I think it was round about in one summer, yeah, round about that number, yeah. Now, your career uh, in the 70s took you, took you on and you moved on to Glasgow, uh, the home of the Scottish press initially. Uh, but that didn't stop you being a Dons fan. There were occasions, obviously, when the team would pitch up down in Glasgow. And memorably, uh, in the mid-70s, one time where they, they won a cup replay down at Ibrox and you ended up celebrating with a side uh, in a George Square hotel. I did indeed, the North British Hotel. And... Uh, we went back, and I and I've got to admit, in those days, I I tumbled into hard drinking with a vengeance, and I think it'd been because I'd been a night shift for so many years, my young life, and I'd been denied the the vicissitudes of of uh, adolescence. So I was now 30 years of age, <coughs> and I could <coughs> excuse me, I could drink for Scotland, and that night I chose to drink for Scotland. I celebrated up in the press box with one, two one, I think it was, fourth round replay, Scottish Cup replay, and we repaired to North British where I was staying. And some of the lads were were talking about going out celebrating, and I I cautioned them. I said, well, if I were you, I wouldn't go out because uh, you'd probably get a form of retribution. One of the nightclubs, some of the Rangers fans won't take it. And so what we do, I said, well, stay here and I'll buy some beer. I'll put it on the expenses and we'll have a good chinwag. So we did, and, and, and a few uh, crates of beer were on. Uh, Willie Young was uh, looking for a bottle opener, but he didn't need one. He took it off his teeth. <laughs> so we had a, a final time up until about 3 o'clock in the morning. And then I suggested to uh, some members of the party that they weren't very fit as footballers. Uh, a row ensued and they said well <clears throat> I said you can put up your fastest man and I'll race him around your square <laughs> and for some reason they put up Duncan Davidson and they gave me would you believe half a lap, half a lap start and just before we, uh, I was coming to the finish line where people like Willie Miller and uh, uh, Willie Young and and Drew, Drew Jarvie, all these people were standing there. Um, uh, Mr. Davidson whizzed past me and beat me about, about, by about two lengths. Um, and then we, we went back to the hotel and continued our drinking until maybe four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> now, the only thing was, when I woke up about nine o'clock, I didn't know where I was. I could have been in, uh, in um, sorry, Indonesia, let alone uh, George Square. <clears throat> I decided uh, I'm going to write about this, and I wrote about it, and it was the back page lead turning in the sun, and uh, and after I'd written it, after it sobered up, I couldn't do anything about it, it was too late, stories in the, the paper, um, I just thought to myself, what consequences will this have? It doesn't look good in the football club, it doesn't look good in the manager, it doesn't look good in me, or whatever. All the players. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> and later I apologised to Jimmy Bonfield, the, the manager. Uh, but he was sacked a few weeks later anyway. Uh, so, but these things lie in your conscience. And even now, all these years later, I know I shouldn't have done it. But I did do it. And uh, you can't get back from that. But that said, uh, I think the book is, it often features a lot of stories which uh, were held back from the press at the time, things which, for one reason or another, weren't made public at the time. And it's, it seems to be as a result of not just um, your ability to get under the skin of an interviewer, but also the fact that you have, you, or certainly you had the ability to the contact with footballers back in the day it was it was much more of a, a on an even basis than it would be now there's no intermediary stopping your uh, your discussion with the footballers it, it, you were in, able to actually build up relationships and friendships with these guys yeah that's true well, I used to before before going into the press and journal which I started about five every night I used to meet Ali Shoon uh, who was Aberdeen captain at one point and uh, Ernie Winchester, mm-hmm. uh, along with uh, one, of the, one of the landlords called Jimmy McGregor. We used to meet in the palace uh, coffee room uh, two or three times a week. 
So I knew the players. I knew most of them. I would have liked to have known Charlie Cook, for instance, but he always kept himself apart. But I knew players, Jimmy White, he's still a friend to today. And today, compared with yesteryear, it's just night and day. There's, there's no comparison. Uh, you used to be able to get to, to know players, to have their telephone numbers, uh, to go and chat the doors. Nowadays, no. There's intermediaries all the time. There's directors of communication or uh, um, non-communication, as it were. Um, everything is built up to keep uh, five degrees of separation between you and the players. Maybe, maybe from their point, it's maybe a good thing. But uh, in another way, it's not because um, we've lost that kind of closeness and camaraderie that we used to share. Now, as your career developed, you moved from Glasgow on to London, a number of high-profile jobs down there, but it coincided uh, with Aberdeen moving on and moving on to another level under Alex Ferguson. Um, yeah. So much has been written, so much has been said, but uh, is there any sort of lingering regret that you weren't actually able to make it over to Gothenburg yourself? Oh, totally. Uh, absolutely. I was, I was going through a uh, a bad spell with my sports editor at the time and uh, good sports editors will forget you know any old enmities and and, and carry on bad sports editors uh, will say no you're not going on that trip or whatever and I was denied the trip I can't remember where I was and pro- probably it was somewhere where I didn't need to be at the time but it's it's one of those things I wish I'd been there I wish I had carried the memories in my head now, I, I don't. I just remember watching the TV. Lots of people splashing about in a lot of water and a lot of glee and, and fantastic. Uh, one, one of the things in my book was I interviewed Stuart Kennedy, <coughs> who, who obviously couldn't make Gothenburg as a player and thought he might make it as a sub for a few minutes. Uh, and then at the end, with all the, the uh, euphoria, that was going on, he got trampled on in the mud, and it probably did his leg an even bigger disservice. But um, great memories of, of that, but it could have been so much better. Now, uh, the book brings uh, right back up, uh, right up to the present day. It has um, pieces about Aberdeen under Craig Brown, Aberdeen under the current manager, Derek McInnes. Um, also, famously, I think, whilst you were uh, contributing interviews to the to the Sunday Herald, uh, you did one with our former manager, Mark McGee, quite a controversial one, really, given the quotes that you came out with, uh, yeah. in terms of never looking towards Pataudry again, and um, yeah. how did you find him, I mean, I know that previously he had been actually quite a close, a good friend of yours, uh, whilst he was living no, no, down in mean, London. He, he was never, no, sorry Richard, he was never a good friend of mine, what, what, what he was was a dinner companion. Right, okay, uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> my apologies. <clears throat> uh, I first met him at fo- Football Writers in the, in the Royal Lancaster Hotel, and I quite liked him. And within about ten minutes of meeting me, he told me the Fergie story, how he'd stiffened Fergie after Gothenburg, returned from Gothenburg. And, um, and then I invited him to a, a sportsman's dinner at the Cafe Royal. Now, unfortunately, that night, he was in talks with uh, Theo Pafitas, who was a Millwall chairman, and his phone kept going off. Uh, and he got the job anyway, but uh, more important, we went to that dinner, and, well, you know, uh, I, I don't know what you would call us, we weren't friends, we were associates or what, yeah. whatever. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyway, when, when I went to, to Brighton, I'd written something in this, in the, uh, I think it was the Daily Mail, um, that he wouldn't have liked at all. But we sat down, and this is after him telling me to meet him between two sex shops at Brighton, <laughs> which was a little bit dangerous for a man of my age, going near sex shops. Anyway, <clears throat> we sat down, I had coffees, and I said, I'm a bit surprised at you meeting me. Uh, why is that? I said, well, I wrote something you probably wouldn't look kindly on in the Daily Mail. He said, whatever you wrote, I wouldn't care about. And I thought, it's a very odd 
Lord's thing this year. I said, why? Why is that? He said, because um, whatever you, whatever you thought, whatever impression you formed of me, it would be wrong. So you've got that coming at you. And I never quite met someone like Mark McGee as a manager. Both times I met him before, he was out of a job. But now he's in a job. Uh, or was he in it? I beg your pardon. He wasn't in a job. Sorry, he wasn't. He was out of a job. So um, anyway, the interview started and he told me, he said, look, he says, I'm not going to go into great deal about Aberdeen, detail about this, detail about that. But I said to him, oh, we're, we're doing this. This is, a, this is for a web. We're doing it. I'm recording you, you know. And I said, you can't keep saying it's all off the record. Otherwise, there's, there's going to be no interview. So it was on, upon that agreement we went on. So next thing, anyway, I, I went away. I got this interview, which was quite controversial. But it's time at Aberdeen. He, didn't, he obviously didn't like his stay at Aberdeen. He didn't appreciate anyone, uh, from the tea lady to the lady in the reception. Um, he called them drainers. Uh, he didn't think Stuart Mill, Stuart Mill had contributed a great deal. Anyway, but, uh, the story went in. And the next thing I heard was, a couple of days later, BBC Scotland phoned me and said, Mark McGee has been saying X, Y, Z about your story, that much of it was off the record and whatever. I said, well, uh, so they put me on live. And I said, the, the seagulls must have been pecking at Mark's brain if he's forgotten the, the terms of the interview, etc. Um, so, and, and Mark had also said, I didn't know the bloke from Adam. And that really riled me. I mean, I know I don't make a great impression in everyone in the world, but to sit beside someone for a few hours at dinners uh, and to pay probably 100 quid for his ticket on one occasion, and then he turns around and he says, didn't know me from Adam. Uh, so it was a stupid thing to say. Um, <clears throat> I'm afraid uh, Mark and I will probably never go on. It's one of those things. I don't dislike him uh, at all, uh, but I think... He says things, and then when he sees them in print, he regrets it. But there are a couple of stories about Mark that um, I haven't included in the book, um, and I wouldn't include in the book, because they would not reflect very well on them at all. Well, within the book, there's a huge variety of stories and and interview excerpts covering 60 years of the dawns and it's a, a very welcome read uh, as I say a bit of an unveiling of the curtain I think and um, again a, a fine addition to the uh, collection of uh, books on Aberdeen FC Brian so thank you for joining us again tonight and, and thank you for writing it that's very kind of you thank you Richard so finally tonight we'll move on to briefly discuss the game against Hibs in a couple of weeks time after the international break now We've taken 20 points out of 24. Any team in the league would probably uh, snatch your hand off for that. But uh, I do feel that this side needs a statement win, Martin. Last year we got one at Tynecastle on the 30th of December. It would be a good place to do it at Easter Road, wouldn't it? It absolutely would be. I mean, you know, we've heard a lot of talk pre-season uh, about how you know, Hibs were going to be the guys to challenge us. Hibs were, Hibs were aiming for second was, was the talk as well. Um, and they've had a couple of they've had a couple of poor results as well. Now they lost three one at home uh, to Hamilton, um, but they have also to, to to flip the side of that they've gone away and they've won at Ibrox, they've drawn at Parkhead. Um, so there would be a there would be a good scalp to get there. I mean, even though they've only just been promoted uh, from the, from being in the lower division for a few seasons, you know, there are the Hibs. You know, are one of the bigger teams in the country, and it would be you know it's always nice to get one over the Edinburgh clubs. There's no getting away from that. So um, twenty points out of twenty four. Yep. It's fine. It's fine. You know, I can't believe we're saying it's fine. You know, but um, you know, because we're so demand, we're all football fans now. We're all so demanding. But a statement win would be perfect. You know, going going Easter Road, um, giving them uh, giving them a good doing, um, and coming away with three points would be just the ticket. Yeah, it'd be a very good win. Right, Tom. The Hibs team. They've had uh, a lot of good press, a lot of good, uh, positive comments, but ultimately. They're sitting sixth in the table at the moment. This this has got to be looked upon as a winnable game, doesn't it? I hope to start the season very well, and they, you know, like you say, they, they've uh, they've gone away to, to Glasgow twice and won once and got a 
you know, we're unlucky to only get a draw at the weekend. Having said that, they've only won one of their last six games in the league. You know, they, they draw points to, uh, to Motherwell, they draw points to St. Johnson, they draw points to Dundee, and they lost to, they lost to Hamilton. Um, so, you know, one of the things I, I said about him earlier on in the season is, while they got up this, this head of steam, what they still needed to convince on is that they weren't just going to be another hip side who were so unpredictable and on their day could beat anyone. But on their day, could you know lose by three or four to a side who hadn't won in, in ages, and it doesn't look like they're over that yet. Uh, they've, they've put together a really good squad. I mean, I think any Hibs fan would be must be fairly pleased with with the, the additions they've had to the squad. The fact that players like Dan, Danny Swanson, injury aside, has, um, haven't been able to hold down a a, a first team place um, throughout. Is, is testament to the squad they've got. I, I really am a big fan of Marvin Bartley. I think, um, although John McGinn gets gets all the credit for uh, in midfield, I think Marvin Bartley's a, a real underrated, a really underrated player, and there's not many like him uh, in the division. But having said that, as good as their squad is, I don't think it's as good as ours. I think if we turn up and we play as confidently as we did at the weekend, um, we'll cause them all sorts of problems. Uh, Brian, one thing uh, that Hibs have which guarantees a lot of press is that they have Neil Lennon in charge and as being a ex-Celtic manager he's not going to allow his teams to be intimidated by going to Ibrox or Parkhead as we saw at the weekend that's maybe a bit of the attitude that we could do with it for Tawdry, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely Uh, a great deal of admiration for Lennon because you know, after leaving Celtic and he was fairly desperate to leave Celtic to make an imprint in England and of course he joined the wrong club or they might have thought he was the wrong manager but finances weren't good etc anyway swallowed all that indignity uh, came up to Scotland and has fashioned a a really good good side Um, that was interesting when you were talking about about um, Barclay and McGinn I I think McGinn is, is going to be a really great player Watched him in, uh, uh, against Celtic and the, the goals, etc. And I and, and and don't think it's foresight or whatever. But all those years, say three years ago, when when we bought Kenny McLean um, from St Mirren, uh, and it cost anything between two and three hundred thousand, depending on who you believe. Um, I always thought McGinn was a better player because he's got that force. And he, he, he drives forward and there's always a bit in his game. And I think eventually he'll go down to England and be quite a considerable force down there. But um, uh, I think um, uh, for this match, I, I'm just hoping that, that we can do it well. There's something I would like to ask the, the other two in the, the panel. And it's, um, I'm a great believer in 4-4-2, never mind the ones and twos threes and whatever and I thought we were going to get in Saturday with me and Rooney um, now the last time and I'm, the last time I saw 4-4-2 being played at Aberdeen was against Maribor in July of last year and that night Rooney and uh, Stockley and the, the, they, they were peppering the goal not, not, not uh, successfully unfortunately it was 1-1 but I thought it was a very, very progressive uh, moment that in Aberdeen's time. And yet, we reverted to the one up front all the time. Could I, could I ask for your versions? Martin, do you want to go first? Formations are so fluid now where um, I don't think you could really pick a team in Scotland that say, we play this formation. Um, a lot of people do kind of click, chant for 4 4 2 and. Uh, when you've got sort of the, the whole thing with attacking fullbacks and you, you've got your 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 defensive midfield that drops in as well, I do understand what you're saying. And four four two, um, I I kind of was a I kind of was a a big fan of it and was kind of calling for it a few seasons ago. Um, but I think now that Derek's got a kind of players that can, especially the squad we have now, um, compared to last season where you can pretty much, you can pretty much play any positions. I mean, the problem is now we do have is that, you know, Derek seems to have a bumper Bino Buka crazy formations that he likes to play, um, which is something that we need to kind of just kind of deal with. But, um, 
I think that Sarah, the, the four two three one four three two one now is going to be the way we go forward from. Tom, I, I'd suggest it's probably less likely this season. Last season, you might have, you might have had a case given you had two genuine out and out wingers. Um, if anything, we're probably going to go a bit narrower this season, don't you think? I would I would suspect so. And if we're going to revert to uh, playing uh, Rogan and Shinny at fullback, that's not uh, no bad thing. I mean. It, even I think an awful lot of what there's, there's been more people have been more aware of formations in the last 10 years or so than they may have at any point previously and I think an awful lot of it is just a, a, a language that helps you understand how a team is set up I think the, the difference you know if 30 years ago we've been talking formations the difference between a Alex Ferguson 442 and a Brian Clough 442 would have been markedly different and you know if it had different names for those they probably seen as being quite so rigid I mean the, the classic England 1966 442 even even further removed and um, so I, I think an awful lot of this is just ways of Ways of explaining how people play. I mean, you can see it in the, in a Spain's five-man midfield with no striker it doesn't necessarily mean the same as the uh, Craig Levine version uh, against the Czech Republic a few, a few years back. I, I think that it's. I, I, I think yeah. I think last season had we gone for like a purely four-four-two or, or played with two out-and-out goal scorers, then I, I think the players we had would have fitted that formation a little bit better. Certainly at the moment, while we're still finding our feet with um, with a, a protecting player in the middle of the park, then I think we maybe need slightly more cover there, which it seems to be what we've done in the last couple of games. I think there's a thing to him as well, isn't there, where you, you have a formation with the ball and without the ball and, and genuinely with the ball on Saturday it was more of a 3-5-2 uh, May and Rooney really were both up front and Christy a little bit behind them uh, whereas without it it was it was a more compact 4-1 uh, 4-3-2-1 sorry I'm getting confused myself here uh, but yeah <laughs> trying to think of teams with just one formation when, it, when we do look markedly different with and without the ball it again can be, can be a bit limiting well, Mother will play two up, and St Johnston mostly as well yeah. on on Saturday. No, it's so. just that we've got we've got some good good players, and sometimes you've got to impose yourself on the the opposition rather than let them try and impose themselves on you. And 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 two up front, never mind what what lies behind. I think it's I think two up front is the thing. I, I like to see the uh, uh, coordination between the. Two strikers, whatever. I think it's good. I think it's exciting. Of course, you need the wingers and whatever. And of course, we've got wingers, but they, you know they're not all played. No, it's, it's, it's a very interesting point. It definitely is something which a lot of people have asked for and argued for. Certainly at home, and certainly against some of the, shall we say, smaller teams in the league. And it's uh, it's been a recurring call from the terraces. You know, let's have two up front. Let's go for it. But it, it I. I think the other thing, Tom, I may bring you in on this, is, is that the assumption that just playing one up front is defensive, is is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's all, again, it's all about the players you're putting out. I mean, the, the Craig Levine's famous 4-6-0 that he had against the Czech Republic, that had uh, Stephen Naismith was playing in that team. Um, I can't remember there was at least one other recognisable forward player in that in that team. By the same regards, the, the Spain team that won pretty much everything for for six years had frequently had no recognisable striker in that team. It didn't mean that they were less attacking or they were less. It, I mean, it's not what I want to see necessarily from from my football team, but um, they they were set up to hold the ball and they were set up to to control games. Um, I mean, there were there were times last season you could argue that we played four up front. You know, there were times that we were, especially when we were we were chasing games when we had Hayes committed forward. We might have started with with two strikers. We had Hayes and McGinn committed forward as well. Equally, um, you know, that from the weekend there were times when in the the final third of the pitch we had, you know, Stuart Christie, Rooney, May, 
and McLean and potentially um, one of the fullbacks as well. So it, it, you know, if you're set up to get men forward and to overlap, then I think you can. It, the the actual formation that's put down is a is a perhaps a little bit of a misnomer. I think the thing about the night uh, Brian that you're talking about against Maribor, we were also quite direct that night. Uh, obviously, with Absolutely. Jaden with Jaden yeah, the team, you're going to do that. And and you know you look at Motherwell and to an extent Leicester, who also played two up front as well. I think someone can correct me if I'm wrong. Again, they're all quite direct teams. They focus on getting the ball forward quickly, and that that's not something really you'd necessarily associate with Derek McInnes. I think so. I just think sometimes you need to punish people uh, when they're there to be punished and one up front and if you're one up front can't control the ball properly you know and 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 hold up for your your other players coming in then you know but anyway I, I don't I don't want to sound a, a, a grim note I'm I'm just tossing something up it's like it's like um, Kenny McLean I'd like to ask Tom and Martin what they think about Ken, Kenny McLean Oh, oh man, I thought we'd be able to go a show without discussing Kenny McLean. He's a constant, <laughs> constant source of debate on here, I can assure you, Brian. Um, listen, before, before we go any further, I just want to put on the record that despite my misgivings about Kenny McLean, I thought he played very well on Saturday. But, Saturday. Um, yeah. but uh, he does he do enough directly impacting the forward areas, uh, Martin, for you, for a guy that's played in the attacking midfield role? Yeah, um, much like yourself, Richard. Um, no, we've I've I've said quite a lot about him over the past few weeks. Um, he was he was a lot better on Saturday, and it was it was one of his better games for a long time. But he does, you know, we we just don't get enough out of him um, for for the ability he has and the ability we know he has. That's the frustrating thing that he seems to be sort of he's performing at sort of seventy percent of of what we've seen before, and you know. A game like Saturday is when you're going to get the best out of him, and he and he did and he did really well. Um, he just needs to he just needs to you know kind of bring those performances to the fore more often. Tommy was playing definitely in a slightly deeper role on Saturday. My beef with him hasn't has been that we don't get enough direct assists or goals from him, given the position he's been playing. There were some stats that uh, someone uh, one of the uh, football stat accounts put put out last week, which basically showed. Involvement earlier in a move that created a chance, and I'll show that Kenny McLean was half as involved as Graham Shinney, which, for me, that's the wrong way around. Yeah, I would agree with that. I also don't think it's a massive surprise either. Um, I think Kenny McLean is one of the best footballers we have as a as a footballer. You know, as the, the whatever that means. And um, I think he's got a good range of passing. He can finish things, he can start things, he can burst forward the ball and when he's on form um, you know, he's a really, really excellent, excellent player um, but you know, he's 25 I think he's 20, 26 at the start of next year, so he's not a, a prospect now, you know, there are players that are 4 or 5 years younger than him that are, are going to be knocking on the door to try and get into the team Frank Ross came on at the weekend and, and you know, had a a fair impact in, in just a handful of minutes. And, you know, although we've all said he was markedly better um, this weekend, it, for me, I'm, I wouldn't have had him in the team at the weekend based on his his previous performances. I think they've been lacklustre. I don't think he's finished things off. You know, he's not been popping up in positions to, to finish chances. He hasn't had an assist yet so far this season. And I think we need to we need to ask a little bit more um, you know, while Graham Shinney can feel justifiably put out that he's not been included in, in Gordon Strachan's Scotland squad, uh, you know, Kenny McLean will have, whereas six months ago was seemed to be further ahead in the, in the pecking order, you know, has, has, will have slipped down significantly because I don't think his performances have been great for the last, you know, three or four months. Last season, when you're talking about six months ago, Kenny McLean was being scouted by Sunderland uh, two or three games and David Moyes' brother scouted him and he was coming back to David Moyes with wondrous reports about this player who could shoot, could beat men, could pass and whatever and he was very composed in those, those days and actually Moyes 
was coming up to see him, or, or maybe did even come up to see him at, at one point. And of course then it all went pear-shaped with Moyes getting the sack. Uh, and from from there on, it just came in the close season when, uh, when Rangers announced an interest and put in a bid for him. Then the form went, and uh, uh, he hasn't been the same player since Saturday. I, did, I didn't really see enough of it to, to judge, but um, I don't think he should have been playing for a few of the games this year because he had, just hadn't been good enough. So whether that put him off his stride, the Rangers' interest, I don't know. But I don't think he'll be here next year anyway. No, no, um, that looks uh, as inevitable as Ryan Jack's departure last season uh, looked, and no doubt to the same destination as well. Anyway, that will be our show for this week. Thank you very much to my guests this week. Thank you to Martin Clunas. Martin, thanks. Thanks, Richard. To the fabulous Tom Watt. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having us. And it was a great pleasure to welcome Brian Cooney to the show this week. Brian's new book is called Stand By Your Reds. It's available on Amazon. It's available in Waterstones. It's available at the, let's just do the usual cliche of all good bookshops. Brian, thank you very much for your time this evening. Including the Aberdeen bookshop. Including the Aberdeen FC club shop, you should say, absolutely. it's made, made its belated way in there. Listen, thanks very much, gentlemen, to Richard, uh, uh, Tom, Martin. Enjoyed sharing the platform with you. That's Thank great. You. Thank you very much indeed. And we'll be back with you in a couple of weeks' time after the international break. Good night and thank you. Thank you.